Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. And Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all of the past episodes of the podcast. On with the show. Welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am co-host Connor McNamara-Stratton. And today we are going down a road that we have traveled before. We are looking at someone who is best known for their non-poetic work, but who also wrote poems. And in this case, somebody who wrote quite a few poems, including an epic poem of almost 18,000 lines. Don't worry, we're not doing that one today. Uh, <laughs> We are talking about a gentleman who did enjoy writing at length, and that is Herman Melville, a true classic, author of, amongst other tomes, Moby Dick. Yeah, I don't know that we need to go into a great deal of biographical detail about Herman Melville, uh, an artist who began to have a little bit of early success in his writing, and then that all went away, and his status is largely from some sort of revisionist canon building that happened, and... Um, one of the really fascinating things about Melville that he kind of illustrates, in addition to having written a book in Moby Dick that at least for me is one that I enjoy revisiting and get a lot of value out of, even though it can, I know, keep some away. It's, I think it has quite a bit in it. Um, but he illustrates the divide between what we understand to be the literary canon and what people were, oh, I don't know, actually reading. And if you look at what the popular literature of the time was, it's very different from Herman Melville. And in fact, it may include quite a few women uh, whose contributions were, you know, unceremoniously discarded by academics. The poem that we're after today is called The Apparition, A Retrospect, and kind of fitting that we are now in the month of All Hallows' Eve. It's beginning to be the most spooktacular time of the year, which... Ooh, it's a haunted podcast. Did you hear that ghost, Connor? <laughs> yes, I am the ghost. the ghost. The ghost of Herman Melville. How'd you get on this Zoom call? Well, you know, there's a great thing about the digital age. It's very user-friendly for ghosts. You guys travel through circuit boards. Ooh, let's read the poem. <laughs> I'll take that as ghost for yes. All right, let's 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 get in here. You get out of the Zoom call, Ghost of Herman Melville. We'll talk to you later. All you right. can be on a special Until interview next episode. time. All right, go home. I would have gotten in a way with it too if it weren't for you meddling poems. Okay. <laughs> All right. This is the apparition, 
A Retrospect by Herman Melville. Convulsions came, and where the field long slept in pastoral green, a goblin mountain was upheaved. Sure the scared sense was all deceived, Marl Glen and Slag Ravine. The unreserve of ill was there, the clinkers in her last retreat. But ere the eye could take it in, or mind could comprehension win, it sunk, and at our feet. So then solidity's a crust, the core of fire below. All may go well for many a year, but who can think without a fear of horrors that happen so? Creepy stuff. Spooky. Very creepy. Spooky Herman, they called him. Did they now? Wow. Oh. Spooky Herman, who died a penniless man. Indeed, supported by his family members because his writing never quite worked out. He got like inheritances occasionally, and usually they would go into like paying for him to publish his work. <laughs> oh, man. I know. Not really a great model for the rest of us. No, but dedicated to his craft. Even after he, he had his brush with commercial success early on, it never came back, but he never neglected his craft, which is in some ways, I think, kind of inspiring. He really stuck with it, and that is how a lot of his better-known works ended up getting actually completed. Yeah, and also interesting about Melville with that I didn't really know was that he kind of turned to poems more seriously like later in life yes correct yes um which i just yes for some reason i feel like is interesting um to think about i think it is and it's an interesting insight sort of into a creative or writing life that you can go through phases where different art forms animate you or interest you or are the medium through which you feel like you can best communicate because you know, as I said, he did end up writing some like epic length poems similar to the way that he had been writing novels, but it was a different form and it, it provided kind of a different method for him to access his creative art. But yeah, as a, as a creative person dedicated to the writing craft, going through different types of writing, because he also started off writing about like he, he went on whaling expeditions in his youth when he was pretty young. And so he wrote about that, but kind of in like a travel loggy way. And that was the writing, I believe, that like got the widest audience for him and that people kind of really liked and responded to. And so even moving away from that to write something like Moby Dick or the other novels that he really put his, his efforts into, that was a departure from kind of, if you want to look at it in a commercial way from like a formula that was working and it ended up being financially disastrous. Uh, but creatively, I don't know how he felt about it. I'm not a Melville scholar, uh, but it seems like that was the more creatively rewarding avenue he went in. And he then also moved on to poetry, which is a, a very interesting shift. Yeah, no, it really is. It really is. Um, yeah, and I, I'm loving this poem a lot. It's it's so, yeah, it's fun to um, just read older poems for me. It's like, because there's parts of it, they're like, well, that's definitely, no one says that anymore, for sure. But also, there's like, I don't know, there's like so much um, invention and innovation in language that like, feels fresh 
I, I'm always surprised by how much feels fresh in obviously, you know, great writers like Melville and stuff like that. But like, um, just something that the line that I love is the, the moral Glen and slag ravine is so fun and good. And like moral is like a kind of stone. And then we got the Glen, which is like a Valley. And then we got slag, which is a great word. And it's kind of metally rock or something like that. And then ravine, which is obviously another. So it's kind of these two compound word phrases for like a rocky valley, but Marl, Glen, and Slag Ravine are just like, that's awesome. It's um, so good. I yeah. don't know if you ever got too deep into, I don't think you did, uh, the Redwall books. Oh, Brian I, Jakes. I know, I, I know you read some of them. Did you get, I don't know how deep you went. How deep did you go with those? I don't know how deep. I read maybe six or seven. I, there was one year of middle school when I think all of my book reports were Redwall books. Oh my God. If only I hadn't been so weird, we could have been friends even sooner. Um, <laughs> Cause let me tell you, uh, the first Redwall book I read, I don't know how I came across it, but it was one called Marl Fox. And it's about these foxes that are masters of disguise. Marl Fox. Yes. I oh read Marl Fox. The coolest cover. Cause it's got this mysterious Fox and Absolutely. it's got this awesome squirrel who looks like he's half asleep all the time, but he's a <laughs> badass fighter. His name is Jangler Swift. Eye. I still remember that. Oh my gosh. And there was this family of foxes who lived in like Marl castle out in the middle of a lake. And it was so cool. And they could like hide really well. But uh, that was when I learned what the word Marl meant because I went and looked it up when I was reading my Redwall books. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and that remains, I think, among my favorites of the Redwall books. That one and, like, the first one and maybe one of the ones with the Badgers. In a way, Brian Jakes was – the Redwall books were very formative for me in many ways just because they were a lot of fun but and great adventures and – great stories with great characters and all that stuff. But it also was, I, for some reason, I have a memory of like reading like my eighth Redwall book and then being like, oh, like these books are all the same. Like yes. they have this, like the same, it was like realizing what a sitcom structure is like, but not, it's obviously not a sitcom, but just like, Oh, like this happens and then this thing happens and then that thing happens. And like, I was like, Oh, I'm not interested anymore. Um, but, <laughs> but I had never like, okay. Galaxy brain. <laughs> Ooh, I've, I've, I've solved your narrative riddle. I must move on to more adult fare. Bring me Moby Dick. I'm sure. No, that was I'm 12 year old sure. Connor here. I thought I was the I, reason we didn't hang out. God. No, I'm pretty sure my very next book report was about like Catcher in the Rye. And I was like, it's a little bit of a gross book because he's like kind of gross and like thinks about sex and stuff. I'm pretty sure I wrote a middle school book report about Catcher in the Rye. That was basically just like, I think my teacher must have written just like, I agree. Because <laughs> I'm just obsessed with four, like, 
the formal parts. I think that was like the first time I ever figured out what a form was. I mean, I didn't know it at the time. I like that that's what, how I was thinking about it. But I was like, oh, wow. I mean, I really read like eight of them in one year. I mean, it was like I had a, it was a vase. That's so interesting because I also distinctly remember noticing the structure of Redwall books. And I think part of it is that they had a distinct structure and they were long. And so you had a lot of time with each of the major story beats and you could yeah. watch numerous of them repeat. Like there would be a lot of quest elements and yeah. confrontation elements. And like there was always a bad guy who came up with really creative insults for his horde. And there was always <laughs> a bad guy with a horde and they were going to attack either the right. Abbey or they were going to attack the badgers. I'm totally with you. And I bring up, there, there was another thing that has really stuck with me just like beyond the, the Redwall books, aside from all the characters and story and everything um, that I actually like kind of was also responding to in this poem, aside from just the mention of Marl, which is that Brian Jakes puts a lot of poems and songs into his books that in some ways resonate to me with this because they are very much in like this kind of era style. They usually rhyme. Um, he's got a great voice. If you can listen to the audiobooks, he narrates them. And he did radio work at one point. He just has an incredible voice. Whites, W-Y-T-E-S. Well, like corpse lights that used to hang around graveyards, oh, the yeah. old legends. And the whites, a traveler could be lost in the night in the forest. And you see the whites, and you look like this friendly little light, and they lead him to death. But something else that he is really gifted at as a writer is just description. A lot of times the Redwall books will open with just a page of description of like a frothy, stormy ocean or something. And that is like an integral part of the way that I write and something that I sometimes have to prevent myself from writing is because of that. But it's also something that I think stands out in this. And in fact, at one point I read this poem through in my head in Brian Jakes's voice and like, Oh my gosh. Let me tell you, it is pretty great. Another book that Brian Jakes wrote, cause he wrote more than the, the Redwall books. Uh, he wrote a book called Seven Strange and Ghostly Tales. And this very much reminds me of the style that he, like the stylistic type of scary story and scary like poem riddle thing that he would put in that book. Highly recommend that book as well. Interesting. So basically Brian Jakes is a Melville hack. I would say that Melville wishes he could be Brian Jakes, but you know, <laughs> each their own. You're right. Our next our next episode will feature a one of the songs from Lord Brocktree. Um, Do not tempt me. <laughs> Literally on my phone right now is the audio slope for Martin the Warrior. Okay, I'm loving all this. I'm loving Brian Jakes. I'm loving description. I will let's let's do a quick play by play because this one, unlike our last poem that we discussed, uh, has a fairly clear. Um, well, whether it's clear or not is up to you, but um, a story can be deciphered, certainly. And basically, it's called the apparition. 
convulsions came. There's like this kind of earthquake in this lovely pastoral field, or at least some shaking going happening. And then this whole lot of shaking going on, you might say. <laughs> and then this mountain was upheaved, which I read as like emerged from the earth. And it's like, whoa, this is freaky. And then is like the unreserve of ill was there, which is like, uh, the devil has gone wild. Like, it's just excess of ill. Um, but as I was just about to understand the horror before me, it all disappeared. But ere the eye could take it in, or mind could comprehension win, it sunk and at our feet. And then Melville sort of wraps things up and kind of takes the scene that just happened into a more figurative, almost parably way. Uh, so then solidity's a crest, the core of fire below, all may go well for many a year, but who can think without a fear of horrors that happen so? Um, so that's just kind of like a basic thing, but I um, just kind of like what happens in the poem, because I, I think especially with poems that are written from an earlier time, the, the style um, is such that it's often confusing to me like what's happening at first read. Um, but then it's the good thing about reading older uh, writers is that the craziness of modernism and postmodernism and other kinds of experimental stuff hasn't yet fucked everything up. And so. <laughs> yeah, this is just post romantic. Like, I can deal with that. Things will be described. And it may take some more time, but by the end, you'll have, you'll have a description of something happening. My first question is like, do you know when this was written? Okay, because what I've been thinking about, so, so what happens in the poem is like, this mountain appears and it's freaky, and then it disappears. And so he has this apparition of this like horror goblin mountain. And then this, I guess I'm like trying to tease out, you know, like solidities across the core of fire below, kind of like what is the, like there is a, in some poems, there's not, there's more than just the meaning here as well. But in this poem, there is a kind of like kernel of wisdom, I think that happens at the end. Um, and I sort of feel like, I get the sense that like the speaker has this kind of scary thing that then ended up not being real. He knows that it's like underneath or something. There's like volcanoes that are like underneath the crust of the earth that are like waiting to happen or something. And he's like anxious. It's like, who can think without a fear of horrors that happen? So it's like, you can go along in your life and like, all may go well for many a year, like things will be chill, but it's like this kind of apparition is like reminding him that there's these kind of horrors beneath, I guess. Um, 
which to me is like really interesting. Like my mind goes in two different and similar places, which is one, the current moment that we're in, which is like where the apparition is fucking uh, erupted and is not going away. And like we're in like Trump fascist COVID wildfire land. And um, the horrors are happening. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe it won't go to the worst that it could be. But um, at the same time, it's it's also been interesting to think about, like, like before Trump was elected, there were many among us that there was the kind of fire below the crust that then has like kind of erupted with his election and you know like the most obvious cases just like the white nationalism and white supremacists um who have kind of like have always that sort of those sorts of um sentiments have always been present uh but you know uh were kind of underneath the surface in certain ways. Um, and then I've also been like Melville, you know, lived through the civil war. And I know that like a lot of his, which is kind of why I asked when he wrote it, like, cause I know I was reading and, you know, one of his books of poetry is like actually about the civil war itself. Um, and so I know that he must have thought a lot about both the war and also probably enslavement too. Um, although I don't know like what, I don't know enough about him as a person to know what he was thinking about all that, but there were some very clear horrors that happened. Um, and then if this is, I don't know, then the fact that it's a retrospect, um, it just made me think, think of like maybe this is sort of like uh either like post-civil war like we're kind of going back to normal but obviously things aren't normal um or pre like antebellum like obviously things aren't normal then but it's like not the war hasn't erupted yet anyway i just i, I immediately went to bigger kind of historical and present moment stuff and I but um you know more much more about Melville than I do um so I was curious I don't know just where you go with kind of the well with the poem generally but also that the kind of the message or the the, the idea at the end of this poem I love all of that and I think that all of that is contained in there I don't know precisely when this poem was written just because of when he was writing poetry it is almost certainly either during or after the civil war this yeah. feels more in line with his uh like spiritual concerns which show up in a lot of his work particularly in moby dick like most famously obviously um, but there's just a ton of religious overlay 
in in Moby Dick and part of why it is so often treated as the great American novel is because of its sort of perspective on religion and specifically Christianity. Um, but I definitely see very clearly the connections that you're making and I love them. And I think that is part of the power in this poem is the way that it describes this appearing and disappearing and then simmering danger or simmering perceived threat. That's definitely a, the contemporary horror contained in the poem is definitely there. Um, it also like, and this is, again, this is doing what I rarely do. And so I apologize, but just like reading his biography sort of crudely into, but you know, like his son died by suicide, Malcolm, um, Anyway, and I think there were a number of other personal tragedies and I don't know, but the, the idea of mental health and suicide is like someone struggles for a long time often and you might like, there might be sort of blips or moments when it like appears or something that like, you know, um, that someone's like struggling a lot or whatever. Um, but then it can all seem fine based on the way that the, the person presents himself or something. Um, at any rate, which, and then like things can be cool for a while, but then things go south or something. Um, obviously, that is not a, a complex or nuanced take on mental health uh, or, you know, depression or suicidality. Um, but I, I just was from, anyway, it just seemed like another possible kind of like, um, you know, one of, one of the great sort of things about these kinds of poems that have such a, like the sort of the metaphor is so rich, but also like not tied to something super specific, you know, like it's like his eye for detail, like the, the goblin mountain is like super well-developed and like, um, you know, the Morrow Glen and the Slag Ravine and all that sort of like coming up out of the earth. Um, but then like the metaphor for like solidities of crust or like things can go south really quickly or there's horrors waiting for you. That isn't like tied to uh, some specific topic in this poem. And so it, it has a sort of portable quality where it can be like Trump or it could apply to, you know, um, personal tragedies in Melville's life or whatever. Um, and it also like sort of Melville aside, it's one of the enduring, I think, qualities of a poem like this where I can read it myself and like, because it's because the the metaphor is both strong but 
portable, like I can use it for my own, like, oh, this like really applies to this thing that happened to me or, you know, whatever. It's like, it, it, it provides a way of opening up something that has happened to me or happened to others that I know that I hadn't had a way of like sort of understanding or something like that. I think that's such a good point because that like ability to write yourself into a piece can be so powerful and is one of the great ways that art can be really useful is that it can be a way to process something that you are going through by putting yourself into it. And you're so right, partially because this metaphor is developed so well, partially because the experience is described so well, because like, I think we've all had that experience of creating even like the literal one that's being described here, you create some ghost or apparition for yourself, like in the dark or something, you hear a twig snap in the distance. And for half a second, you see a looming figure rushing out of the woods, and then it disappears before it gets to you. And you realize like, oh, I totally made that up. But then you might have the second realization of, but there's like a reason that I made that up. Like I'm evolutionarily attuned to danger because something could come out of the woods one day. Um, which I feel like is kind of what's also being like just literally described here. And I think that as like an experience you can tap into as a baseline also then allows those metaphors to grow for yourself. Um, which yeah, is just so powerful. Uh, and I really like that it almost becomes quasi aphoristic in that way. Like, broadly applicable, but still powerful. And I think that's another place where it's a tough line to ride because you don't want to just be cliche, but if you can tap into something essential and articulate it well, that's the mark of a lot of really good enduring art. Um, for some reason, when I was reading this poem, I kept thinking of a line from a Tom Petty song and something that he as a songwriter can do really, really well is state things very simply, but not in a way that makes you think like, ugh, I've heard that a thousand times, like <laughs> rhymed hat and bat, get out of here. Um, <laughs> but he has this almost throwaway line in uh, one of his songs, Crawling Back to You, most of the things I worry about never happen anyway. Which on its own is not like, ooh, wow, what a poetic line in a song. But you know what, of all the lines in that song, but that's the line I come back to and think about and is most applicable in my life. Whenever I start really getting worried about a bunch of stuff, I can stop myself and be like, I'm worrying about stuff that literally no one else is thinking about. Like, this is all me. Most of the things I worry about never happen anyway. Like, check yourself before you wreck yourself, you know? <laughs> and I feel like there's a little bit of that also in this poem of like, you can get yourself into such a state of concern and it's not that the underlying anxiety isn't there or isn't valuable. It's still there under the crust, but you have created this apparition in that moment. Um, and I feel like, yeah, this feels to me like one of those works that operates on so many levels, depending on how you want it to work for you or how you're engaging with it. And that is something really powerful that it's doing uh and that really just art can do and i think that's something that like is one of the reasons for the enduring success of moby dick there's so much that goes on in that book 
but the essential components of it, which are the ones that are like most popularly known of the obsessive captain and the white whale, that unattainable constant foe of the deep, um, not getting into how accurate all of this is as a, you know, articulation of the book, but like those big elements in that story endure. And there's a reason like he tapped into something really key there and people tap into something about that story that they carry on into like popular culture, almost memification of the story. And I think that that's really valuable. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I, yeah, I think in like anxiety, this is such a good poem about anxiety. Um, and it's such a, it's like a, it's a hard thing to sort of conceptualize in a way because there's this tension between the real and the not real. And like, on the one hand, like it's not, you know, in the poem, sure the scared sense was all deceived. Like it's not it's quite a legitimate fear of like, like the bear is not actually there about to kill you or whatever. But then at the same time, it's not that it's all in your head. Like, cause this poem ends, you know, the core of fire below, like who can think without a fear of horrors that happens so. Um, and so, you know, like, and, and a lot of times, you know, like, I mean, anxiety is incredibly variable and different among different people. And also like for one person can have different kinds of anxiety, but um, like, a lot of a lot of times I think there's this tension between like we kind of something happens or has happened that was freaky and then like it could happen again or something. This is a crude formulation of it. Um and like um you know either you you genuinely weren't safe for some moment or like um blah 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 and then like maybe you're in a different world but like you know you're you're safe you're in a safe like you know um place but there are things that remind you you know like triggers or whatever that remind you of the unsafe time or something again this is clearly not trained in the psychological sciences um but at the same like there's uh i think like the difficulty but then i i think there's a difficulty of what to do with the anxiety too. Um, because it's like, well, it's not like, it's not just in my head. Like, it's not like, you know, the fire is still below. And so, and it could happen or whatever. And so it's like, how do you manage something that is like an apparition or like underneath the surface? which is 
not like staring you in the face, but it's also not totally fake. And I feel like a lot of times, and also, you know, there's like a challenge of, and like, how, how would you, someone comes to you and like says they're feeling really anxious about something. It's like, well, on the one hand, you don't want to gaslight them and be like, you shouldn't be anxious about anything. Cause for one, it's 2020. It's time for anxiety. Literally everything you thought about maybe being anxious about it's time. It's, it's happening. I mean, that's the, yeah. Yeah. Now is um, the time. those things, I mean, sorry, Tom, but some of the things I worry about are happening right now. Yeah. They are in fact here. Melvin's Goblin Mountain has been upheaved twice over. Um, Indeed. Indeed. But yeah, but then at the same time, it's not quite right to like validate, not validate, but like um, if you treat the anxiety that someone's coming to you with as like totally legitimate, it like reinforces the feeling that it's like, okay, this is something that I have. So anyway, there's like, um, not that this poem is a self-help poem, but it, it like, I don't know, just thinking, hearing you talk about it and um, it provides a kind of, the metaphor it provides is, is a, a shape that fits anxiety in a way that not a lot of other things have, I guess. Totally. I mean, this poem to me, in a lot of ways, feels like a conduit for the reader. And it's interesting because, you know, we had brought up the poem that we just talked about, Snake White, Owl White. And that is a much more abstract poem in many ways, but it's not the same kind of clear conduit for the reader to another place or to, like, process themselves through art in the way that this much more concrete poem is and i think that that's something that's pretty interesting because you would think maybe intuitively that a more specific poem would provide fewer avenues to write yourself in or to make your own meaning because it's describing something pretty literally but <laughs> in fact through doing that and through being that straightforward it then gives you something solid to build on it's it's almost like a foundation i don't know if i'm thinking conduit or foundation but either way it's either a conduit <laughs> that helps you travel to the next place or it's a foundation on which you can build your own meaning. So you can take the meaning of the poem and then, as you were saying about the sort of portable metaphor, <laughs> you can then take it and use it for your own purposes. And you begin with that solid base of this poem about an apparition or, you know, whatever you take apparition to be an insubstantial fear or concern or worry, anxiety, you know, general horrors of the world or, you know, underlying horrors of society that are just out of sight, but which sometimes burst into view, like it gives you a lot to, to build with and to work with. It gives you really strong tools as a reader, which I really, really like. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a way, the specificity comes not in the, like the, Thing the metaphor is trying to explain it comes in the, the texture of the metaphor itself it's like it, it brings you in the senses 
and then like once you're in this the sensory world of the the apparition mountain like then you can kind of like step back out and think about how solidity is a crust basically it's weird because it's like solidity is a crust it's like yes of course it is um but then it's like solidity is just a crust it's like both crusts are quite solid <laughs> but they're over something you know um they're over the core of fire great use of just like the structure of a planet um, yeah, i was sort of curious about that because i don't really know what the status of like science was yeah yeah i don't know how far science had gotten on planets at the time but like if they hadn't figured that out all right herman <laughs> pretty cool stuff there and if yeah. they had then like also good for knowing about science i guess because it's probably <laughs> like i don't know i guess if you've seen some volcanoes or like know about it it's like it's reasonable to assume that the fire came from below the earth but at the same time, the core, it's not intuitively clear that the whole core of the earth is molten, you know? Um, so yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and, and just like solidity too, as the kind of, um, that's the metaphorical thing. Like, it's not like security or safety or like, um, you know, contentment or peace or whatever. It's just like the fact of something really being something solid, you know? Um, it almost feels like it stands in for like reality yeah and we yeah, should note yeah. it, it is a capitalized word in the middle of the line yes which was common at that point but was used in intentional ways to be like the idea of solidity or something like also right. ill is capitalized the unreserve of ill was there uh in the in the goblin mountain um, I think that's also the unreserve of ill is a cool moment where terminology that was probably much more common at the time is really interesting and fun from a contemporary perspective. Like something described as the unreserve of ill yeah. is like <laughs> nice. <laughs> Even if at the time it would have been like, I mean, that's what everybody says. Right. I don't know for sure if that's the case, but it feels like one of those things that was probably much more common in the 18 probably 60s or 70s when this was written i don't know for sure but yeah no totally um yeah yeah there yeah i think that's really right like yeah someone saying yeah by god or like whatever would have been anyway yeah there's just the way that common yeah, language becomes uncommon, but not necessarily in a, like there's other parts of the poem that are like, okay, you know, like, but ere the eye could take it in or mind could comprehension win. Like the rhyme there is very 
loud plus the syntax being like inverted in that old style uh, is like, I think would be normal for a reader of that era, but for, for the contemporary, it reads like, all right, Melville, like time to dust off the old, <laughs> uh, you know, time to get fresh again. Um, but the eye, I mean, the, the idea is still interesting. Like, I mean, the air the eye could take in is pretty straightforward, but the mind could comprehension win like, you know, before you could understand what, what's actually happening, but like winning comprehension is also like a cool, I don't know, um, cool, like way to think about that. Um, yeah. I also think that the fact that the poem ends with a question, you know, it like it sends, which there is, at least I've heard, no, no teachers told me this, but I've heard fellow writers say that uh, they've had teachers be like, you should never end a poem with a question. <laughs> um, I don't know why. Anyway, uh, I do think that like in this case, especially because it's like an aphoristic kind of thing, that then it's still leaving this openness the question makes it open in a kind of way where it's not just like solidities are crust and there's a core fire below and like you're always going to be thinking about that horror. It's rather like, you know, yeah, who can not be a little worried about it, you know? Um, like there's a, I don't know, that kind of, uncertainty to come after the establishment of the of the metaphor i think like really helps open the poem up um i think so i think it, it it works sort of like an invitation to the reader and i think that's part of why we're both so quick to start writing our own like contemporary experiences or our personal experiences into the poem is because that end part who can think without a fear of horrors that happen so I take that to be like, what do you got? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, can you, have you ever felt that way? Or can you think of something similar is how I feel like the poem is ending. And I really like that. Cause I think sometimes inviting the reader in that way can lead to really interesting experiences with your art. And there's, you know, less explicit or loud ways to invite a reader in. But I think for particularly a poem like this, this functions really well as an ending and it doesn't necessarily give you that big poem feeling ending that we often talk about, but it does give you a very different kind of experience than almost any other poem ending is going to give you. Cause a lot of times the ending is sort of a summation as opposed to uh, an invitation. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, I think it really does invite the reader in and kind of kind of longs for that that connection too of like i'm not alone in this right you know um which i think is is a part of many poems sort of whether like 
above or below the surface, but um, yeah, no, I really agree with that. Should we read it again? Let's read it again. Though quickly, my favorite uh, Melville quote, which has incredible contemporary resonance, there's no folly of the beasts of the earth that is not infinitely outdone by the madness of man. Whew. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Little kernel for the dome piece. Evergreen, evergreen, Melville. Evergreen. All right, this is also, as we have discussed in many ways, an evergreen <laughs> poem. And, hey, if you can think without a fear of horrors that happen so, drop us an email, closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. We want to hear from your courageous self. The Apparition by Herman Melville, A Retrospect. Convulsions came... And where the field long slept in pastoral green, a goblin mountain was upheaved. Sure, the scared sense was all deceived, marl glen and slag ravine. The unreserve of ill was there, the clinkers in her last retreat. But ere the eye could take it in, or mind could comprehension win, it sunk, and at our feet. So then solidities a crust, the core of fire below. All may go well for many a year, but who can think without a fear of horrors that happen so? So, Jack, it's, uh, we've talked about Herman Melville, your man, your main man. But I'm just curious, you know, what you're reading, what you're watching, what you're listening to, what you're scrolling. Oh, man, what am I not scrolling these days? Um, Woo! I came across, so I really like the Guardian Long Reads podcast. Essentially, it's just long-form articles from The Guardian read to you, usually in a very nice British accent. Um, But there was a particular article recently that stuck out to me, which was called... Uh, tyranny of chairs why we need better design and it's about how humans are like not really built to sit as much as we do and how it causes all sorts of different issues and how the design for chairs was not actually made with the human form or human health in mind it was made because it was like convenient for mass production and for a lot of people to sit and it's a really fascinating dive not just into that but it also gets into more broadly like theories of design and what kind of design practices lead to the best design for the most people. And I don't think this will be a spoiler for the article. I think everybody should still go out and, and find it and read it and we'll make sure to link it and, and all that stuff. Um, but essentially when you design for people who are not whatever you decide your sort of median person is, that's when you end up with the best design. When you design for the most average person, that's when the least efficient and effective designs are created. It's when you are taking into account usability by diverse audiences and diverse abilities that the best designs result. And it gives some really interesting examples in the article of like cookware and all sorts of other stuff that was done with this more holistic design practice in mind. And it was just really, really fascinating, not only for some of the insights about chairs, but also just generally for like better design practices 
for mass production and and mass use wow that is really interesting you did turn me on to the guardian long reads podcast the british accent great love it um also i sit a lot and chairs need to be thought about more it's really true that's dang what you got going on i've got some things going on this might sound crazy or totally classic, but my head is thinking too many thoughts sometimes, often classic. Very classic. Right, right before bed, making it difficult to sleep. So I have started to try to find ways to get the head to slow down. Reading, obviously, a time-old tradition, but for me, you can't just read any old thing. Um, and so I've been starting to slowly make my way through. There's a scholar, uh, Sarah Ahmed, who I have heard things about for a long time, but I've never read anything by her. Uh, and I got The Cultural Politics of Emotion, and <laughs> whenever I tried to describe it to Sharia the other day and I was like, well, it's like about emotion, but not like, you know, it's like sort of like the politics, like the way in, in sort of a cultural sense. Um, the title really says it all. Uh, but um, it's pretty academic stuff, but it's like, um, it's really interesting in that it takes seriously a kind of philosophical definition of them, what an emotion is, but then it tries to like figure out then what, what it then does in a political sense, but like how emotions are sort of used, um, if that makes sense. But I'm still like literally only in the intro because it's very, I just read it before bed, like, three sentences and they're each each one is like whoa um like oh, i actually have to read one okay this is the sentence in other words emotions are not in either the individual or the social but produce the very surfaces and boundaries that allow the individual and the social to be delineated as if they are objects. All which right. is wild, which is like, I'm still trying to figure out what that means, but I think it's like emotions, this whole like, I am me and you are you, emotions are like producing the effect that allows us to even think that way. That's so interesting because it's almost like a linguistic approach to emotions because that's often where like, I, this is going to come full circle. There's a Guardian Long Reads, really excellent uh, podcast episode and article from a little while ago at this point about language and how different languages orient the individual differently. Like, is the world oriented around you 
or do you orient yourself to the world? The way that the language is constructed means that you describe those relationships differently, and it then changes the way that people from different cultures perceive the world, basically. Um, the article is also just about like the incredible percentage of people who speak the top like six languages in the world and stuff. It's really fascinating. So that was on page 10. I've been reading this for a while. So maybe next time I'll be on page 11 and I can update you. <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be great. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.